Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff. In this episode of Russian Roulette, I am joined by Rachel Elahus, Deputy Director of CSIS's Europe Program and a former official at the U.S. Department of Defense. We're going to talk about her recent commentary on NATO and the demise of the INF Treaty. Interesting conversation about U.S.-European relations, um, international security, missiles, and lots of other stuff. Let's get started. Welcome back to Russian Roulette. I am joined today by our own Rachel Elahus. Uh, Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So we have talked uh, on Russian Roulette before about uh, arms control, about uh, the future of U.S.-Russia relations in a post-INF world, but we haven't talked much about Europe. So uh, we're glad to have you here today. Uh, you can hopefully enlighten us a little bit about, well, what happens in Europe in a post-INF world. So now that the U.S. has withdrawn from the treaty, um, are we going to see a new arms race in, in Europe? Thanks, Jeff. Well, it's really interesting that you mention Europe in this equation because, as as your listeners will know, the INF Treaty was a bilateral treaty between the United States and Russia, but smack in the middle was Europe. And any missiles that would be deployed or within range were largely um, a threat to our European allies. So this is why, from a NATO perspective, NATO unity has been so important. So making sure that any decision to withdraw from the treaty included the views of NATO allies and also NATO partners, particularly Sweden and Finland, given their mm -hmm. geographic location. And going forward, we want to make sure we move forward with any sort of response or realignment of NATO's defensive and deterrence posture together with the consent and input of allies. So let's go back to that decision because obviously this was a – as you said, it was a bilateral treaty and it was a unilateral U.S. decision to withdraw from it. How uh, was that decision perceived by the European allies and by countries like Sweden and Finland? Well, certainly the United States uh, in in many, many NATO summits and foreign and defense ministerials had approached European allies to try to make the case for uh, why – we had to pressure Russia to return to compliance with the INF Treaty. Uh, intelligence was shared. The case was made. For a variety of reasons, European allies were reluctant uh, to agree wholesale to these violations. It wasn't because they didn't believe that they were true necessarily, uh, but you know, on the one hand, acknowledging they were true would require some sort of response, which some allies were, were reluctant to take. So the United States um, at the defense secretary and, and state secretary level approached NATO allies many times to try to bring them on board with the U.S. decision. Um, the president got a little bit out ahead of, of NATO in October when he announced the U.S. intent to withdraw from the INF Treaty if Russia did not return to compliance. But then in December, allies came on board and they made it clear that through a joint statement that Russia was the one in material breach of the INF Treaty and the U.S. was in compliance with its INF obligations. And the reason why this unity was so important was prior to that, it was very easy for the Russians to point the finger at the United States. Mm -hmm. So we may or may not be violating the treaty, but the U.S. is violating the treaty too. So, you know, there's nothing to be upset about here. Exactly. So if you create that equivalency, then the treaty becomes moot in a way or we agree to let it go on 
although it's being violated by both sides. That, that is the rationale that was put forward. So the Europeans were basically okay with the decision that the U.S. took to, to pull out? They were okay with the decision, and because of the provisions of the treaty, which, which creates the six-month window before you can formally withdraw, there actually was time between December of last year and June of this year in which, theoretically, the Russians could have returned to compliance. So some allies certainly hoped, I believe, that by presenting this united front and this pressure on Russia, they would perhaps acknowledge the violation and return to compliance. Yeah. You know, I think at least my own view of, of Russia's strategy in all of this was that they wanted the treaty to go away and they wanted us to be the ones to take the opprobrium for making the decision to walk away from it. Um, the Russian military and security establishment never liked the INF treaty. And I think the fact that they could do things that would force us to make a, an uncomfortable political decision and the treaty would then go away actually was part of the way that this whole process was being approached in Moscow. I think you're right, Jeff. Um, certainly Russia was more constrained by the treaty than the United States. And even after the treaty, the United States and NATO allies have acknowledged to some extent that they do not need to deploy systems that would have been in contravention to the treaty in order to meet the defense and deterrence needs of Europe. Yeah. So that's the next big question here because now that effectively the INF treaty is dead, um, it creates a completely new security environment in Europe. Um, and obviously a number of the European allies are going to be concerned about whatever steps Russia may take to deploy these systems, which were banned by the treaty, um, that can target uh, European countries. So what are some of the things that the United States and, and NATO um, can do to address those security concerns? NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg has argued for a graduated response, so certainly not to rush to um, escalation or offensive measures that could, as, as you said at the outset, lead to a new, new arms race. What he has argued for is a balanced, coordinative, and defensive response. So this is looking at NATO's existing defense and deterrence posture and, and for example, making adjustments to its exercises, making adjustments to its uh, surveillance and reconnaissance capabilities so it can keep a better eye on potential Russian buildup of these systems now that it's not constrained by INF. I think the view for now among most allies is, is that we do not need to deploy new nuclear capabilities um, to Europe, certainly no land-based ones. Uh, but depending on the course that um, Russia takes, we may need to reconsider uh, our conventional capabilities. Yeah. Well, then when before the INF treaty was signed in the first place, this was a very divisive issue in the transatlantic alliance because there was a push on the part of the United States to deploy these systems in Europe. And it was something that a, a number of the European allies were uncomfortable with. Um, and that was part of the process that led us to, to the INF treaty in the first place. Um, and again, I think if if you look at this the way that Moscow does, I think probably on some level there's maybe a hope that you're going to have some of these transatlantic fissures open up again now that, you know, the question of of responding to the potential of a Russian missile threat to European countries is now back on the table. 
Absolutely. And and again, getting back to the original point of NATO unity, this is why this has been on the agenda of every NATO foreign and defense ministerial since October of last year and even prior is because we want to make sure that allies are in lockstep in terms of what they do next. So you may recall that um, there were reports that Poland had approached the United States and France about a potential uh, purchase of of Tomahawk and and the French version thereof for their future submarines. That would certainly be something we'd want to consider in the context of the alliance, because even if it is not in violation of the INF Treaty, it certainly creates difficulties for NATO in terms of escalation control. Okay, could you elaborate on that a little bit? So in terms of escalation control, NATO has a very deliberate decision-making and command and control system to decide how to respond to any aggression or perceived aggression. Decisions are taken at 29. Uh, Military advice is given by the military committee. In some cases, individual parliaments in national capitals have to be consulted. So if we have capabilities that have been procured by individual NATO allies but are not part of that integrated decision-making and command and control system, that creates unpredictability and ambiguity and could, uh, rather than deterring action, cause um, an adversary to escalate. So when you say that it, it poses a challenge for escalation control, yes. uh, what does that mean exactly? So that means if a country procures a capability nationally right. that is not integrated mm-hmm. into yeah. NATO systems right. as part of its response portfolio, okay. that takes away power from NATO decision makers in terms and, of controlling the situation. Okay, and devolves it to capitals, which and then devolves it to capitals. Right, creates disunity. Exactly. Okay. So ideally, the way it would be approached is NATO has a nuclear posture. It has Mm -hmm. defense plans for the defense of Europe. Those capabilities would be an integral part of that. Okay. And they would be subject to overall NATO command and control. Yes. A similar example on the conventional side would be the presence of land forces in Europe. So Mm -hmm. um, a number of countries have suggested to the U.S. on a bilateral basis that they'd like a greater presence of U.S. forces. That's difficult because of, as you know, the NATO-Russia Founding Act, which is of interest to a lot of NATO allies, and they still abide by that, even if informally. There's Um, also the U.S. domestic political angle, and this is something that is going to be litigated in our own politics, too. Absolutely. Where should those forces be? Well, and should we commit the resources to to deploying them? To defending others and and deploying them. Absolutely. So, I mean, this is one of the things that you talked about as a potential response is increased conventional deployments. I mean, how would you think about ways that the U.S. and its allies can do conventional deployments that would be an adequate response to the threat posed by Russian INF range missiles? The biggest challenge to NATO's conventional posture now is what we call sort of the anti-access area denial problem. Because Russia is closer to the European continent, they can create umbrellas that make it difficult for the U.S. to reinforce forces in Europe in a timely fashion. Mm -hmm. Basically raising the cost of getting access to particular areas. Exactly. So the types of capabilities that would improve that situation, um, particularly for the Baltic states and Poland, uh, but also in the Black Sea, would be conventional short-range missiles. 
Mm-hmm. So like tomahawks or um, probably more something along the lines of jasm uh, or conventional fires. Okay. And how do you manage that in a way that doesn't create more of an escalation spiral? Well, I think it would have to be a discussion that was taken in a NATO context. So the way this normally plays out is an individual uh, member state or groups of member states come to the table with intelligence that shows the threat has increased to a point where the current posture is unable to defend uh, the United States and and other NATO allies. And so then the military committee would offer a suite of options for improving deterrence and defense. So one of the suggestions may be for a country like Poland or one of the Baltic states to procure these conventional systems. And do you worry about um, political fault lines within the alliance in terms of thinking how to do these responses? Uh, To some extent, yes. Uh, It's particularly a concern for some of the countries who are very focused on arms control and, as we talked about, partner Sweden and Finland. We just had a a case with the Swedes where they had a very big internal debate about whether to join the UN's nuclear ban treaty. Uh In the end, they decided that they shouldn't do that. And what is the treaty? Um, So the UN nuclear ban treaty was essentially an attempt um, at a UN level by a number of countries to get the nuclear powers to agree to reduce their holdings of Mm -hmm. nuclear weapons. In line with the commitments they made when the NPT was signed. To some extent. Uh So that's actually one of the shortcomings is that there was an unclear link uh, to the NPT. Uh, So one of Sweden's conclusions was that it undermined uh, the provisions that you mentioned in the NPT. Uh, None of the nuclear nations who were supposed to be the ones constraining these capabilities were actually signatories to the UN nuclear ban treaty. Uh, And the final concern for Sweden was actually that it would inhibit Sweden's ability to work with NATO as a partner because NATO is a nuclear alliance. So while Sweden is not an ally, it is a partner and it is geographically going to be involved in any of these conflicts we're talking about. Sure. It's within the range of INF missiles that are based on Russian territory. Absolutely. And and Norway has a similar view, and they are a NATO member. So this is why it's important to balance uh, countries' desire for more action on arms control and, and non-proliferation with anything we do on the deterrence and defense side. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what then is the is the next step politically? I mean, what are the things that NATO and particularly the U.S. can do to ameliorate some of those concerns? Well, at this point, I don't think we're actually talking about uh, changing NATO's uh, nuclear or conventional posture. That would require a longer-term assessment, and to some extent, it would be in response to um, what we're picking up in terms of Russian moves Mm -hmm. now that INF is off the table. Uh, So that would be something that that I think is is longer-term. In the short term, in order to bide time, NATO does need to demonstrate resolve, which is exactly what Secretary General Stoltenberg uh, conveyed in June, that if there was not a return to compliance, Mm -hmm. there would be steps taken to increase the defenses. So we're back to exercises, more surveillance, perhaps a repositioning of some of the missile defense assets uh, that are in the region. Mm -hmm. You had a a recent CSIS commentary that we will link to in the show notes so people can read it. But one of the things you talked about in there was uh, missile defense um, and how in a 
post-INF Europe, the question of missile defense might have to be rethought. Can you maybe go through that a little bit? That's probably something that is a last resort. Mm -hmm. uh, it's certainly not desirable, and but the option shouldn't be discarded. Currently, as, as I guess listeners will know, NATO's ballistic missile defense systems are oriented towards Iran and malign actors in the Middle East and not Russia. So a change in NATO's BMD posture, which is currently not oriented towards Russia, would be really significant. Mm -hmm. Although um, the Russians don't necessarily believe that, but that's another story. No, but, you know, I've seen the technology. So so other than being very politically difficult, a Russian-oriented BMD system would pose technical challenges. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very doubtful that the things that are in place now would meet that need. Right, the telemetry of the, the missiles, the way that they fly with the curvature of the Earth. I'm not a physicist, but it's it would be different. Absolutely. I mean, one thing we've talked about uh, and, and the piece talks about is how we don't necessarily need to respond militarily. Uh -huh. So okay. um, in addition to the NATO statement, the European Union issued a statement on INF and, and the treaty. Mm -hmm. um, and it essentially echoed the NATO statement about regretting that the treaty was, was going away, but hoping that we could avoid a new arms race going forward. So I think the next step for the European Union on the non-military side is to step in with political and economic measures mm -hmm. to deter Russia from building up as a result of INF. Uh, likewise, there are um, what we call modern deterrence measures, things in cyber or uh -huh. space or in the economic sphere that could be used to exert pressure. So I guess my point is it doesn't always have to be a military solution. And to sure. some extent, it's better when it's a non-military solution because the U.S. and the European Union in particular actually have dominance uh, right. when it comes to the political and economic measures. So right. those would, in fact, be more effective. Well, they would certainly present a greater range of options. I, mean, I think you're right. One of the big challenges in responding to Russia is th there's a certain asymmetry there. And if we're focused solely on the security space, then we're doing things that the Russians can match and vice versa. Um, but when you kind of expand the problem set and you're talking about all of these things in the political and economic and, um, and other spaces, then I think there are more tools available in, in the West and in NATO's toolbox that Russia doesn't have the ability to respond in a symmetric way to. Yes, that's true. These tools are very powerful, though, even though they're non-military. So we have to think about their cumulative effect and how they're being perceived. By well, I, I think this is I think this is a much bigger problem with our Russia strategy, mm -hmm. which is, you know, how do you calibrate means to ends? There's obviously a political desire to put pressure on Russia over various things that it has done and continues to do, whether it's electoral interference or a violation of its neighbor's territorial integrity or whatever else it is. But the question always becomes, how do you translate the specific measures that you're taking into the desired outcome that you're trying to get. And I don't think that we've always been able to answer that question in a very convincing way. That's my kind of macro critique of our, of our Russia policy. As a, as a parent, I know that if the, if the, <laughs> if the punishment, it's not clear why the child's being punished and the behavior will be repeated. So we have to make sure any response is you know, proportional and, and it's understood why the consequence is being inflicted. Yeah. Well, and I, I also think, though, that it, it's a little different from dealing with children because, uh, you know, Russia doesn't view itself as a child, right? It's a, it, it's an actor that wants a, 
a degree of equality and, and respect. And sometimes I think, you know, when you rely on the on the stick, you get a response that's not the one that, that you'd been hoping for. There's a certain disconnect between inputs and outputs, I suppose. Um, and even though there's this kind of morally satisfying aspect to saying you're being bad, we're going to punish you for this, um, if that doesn't actually get you to a better place, then you know, sometimes you, I, at least I kind of question whether going down that particular path always makes sense. But again, this is a, this is more of a macro critique. It is worth thinking about what positive incentives we could offer, although you'll, you'll probably meet resistance to that. Yeah, well, the, right. And again, our domestic politics and domestic politics in Europe and alliance politics are all part of this as well. Um, and, you know, I think there's probably more unanimity uh, on dealing with Russia now than there has been for a long time in the past. But even still, when you talk about what are we going to do about Russia, whether it's in the, the arms control space or, or anything else, it often gets caught up on our own political debates. And of course, in Washington, there's a very sort of strange politicization around everything to do with Russia, which is something that we talk about on the podcast a lot. Uh, it, you have very weird conversations about Russia. It's almost kind of a proxy for other things that you know people don't want to want to name. Absolutely. We, we saw a little bit of that last week at the G7 where the tables were almost turned. So instead of us um, putting pressure on our European allies and, and the G, other G7 members to maintain sanctions on Russia, notwithstanding its, its presence in, in Crimea, the tables were turned and they were telling our president that, that Russia cannot return um, unless things change. So yeah. I, th I think we need to check one another uh, and the the domestic politics that, that you allude to are certainly playing into that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of striking to see the, you know, the, the French and the Germans really being at the forefront of, of saying, you know, we need to hold the line on this in the face of the U.S., which looks like it's going a little wobbly. Not the Italians. We have the Well. <laughs> they took our side. <laughs> yeah, for, for better or worse. But that is, you know, that sort of brings me to think about another point, which is the degree of European responsibility. Mm -hmm. Perhaps the INF Treaty was outdated to have a bilateral treaty between two great powers with European allies and partners sitting in the middle. Right. So maybe they are the ones who now reshape mm -hmm. what that future posture looks like. Yeah. Um, but as long as the U.S. is a member of, of the NATO alliance, which I hope will, will be enduring, <laughs> um, but, but has also been questioned, we need to be part of that decision. But certainly they should have a greater voice than they did in the past about what deterrence and defense posture looks like in Europe. Yeah. Well, and again, you know, I was talking before about how Russia has always been kind of unhappy with the INF Treaty. And a lot of the Russian military thought Gorbachev sold them out by signing the treaty. But one of the reasons for that was because the French and the British weren't signatories to it. And they have mm -hmm. these capabilities um, that weren't going to be regulated. Um, so I think you're right. If we're going to get to a more sustainable uh, arms control regime in Europe in the future. Politically, it's going to be tough to do outside the bilateral framework. But on the other hand, it, I don't think you're going to be able to get a bilateral agreement given all of the, the, the things that we've been talking about. The demise of INF also has consequences more broadly, um, especially because of its link to the uh, New START agreement, uh, which is up for review in, in a couple of years. So what uh, do you think are the implications of the U.S. decision to withdraw from the INF Treaty on the, the future of New START? 
Well, I do think that while while there's maybe not a, a direct link, there is a trend of um, stepping away from agreements that constrain behavior, particularly formal agreements. I think you see a willingness to negotiate uh, often on a bilateral basis and, and create ad hoc arrangements, but they don't have the staying power of a lot of these treaties. When they uh, don't have the verification, which is what New START gives exactly. us. Exactly. Transparency and verification well, what they all do sort of lack is is consequences, mm-hmm. right? The consequences for violation have never necessarily been clear. I am scratching my head a little bit on New Start and and what exactly the U.S. strategy is for arms control going forward. We saw just days after the U.S. withdrawal from from the INF Treaty, we saw two things. We mm-hmm. saw the new Secretary of Defense, uh, Mark Esper, announcing that he was in favor of deploying short-range ground-based missiles to Asia in response mm-hmm. to China's bill up in that regard. And then just a few days later, he noted that the U.S. had tested uh, off the coast of California our own tomahawk-like cruise missiles. So it's unclear whether whether these moves in, in such close uh, succession are an attempt to draw China to the table. Mm-hmm. But again, to your point about carrots and sticks, where's the carrot? It's, it's just pressure. Uh, so, so I'm a little unclear about the future of New START, both with regard to Russia but, you know, the, the arms control experts will tell you that even if we did extend it to buy time for a broader agreement, uh, we do need to bring in new actors and new systems. Right. And that is, in some ways, the $64,000 question when it comes to arms control. Uh, you know, if you talk to the Chinese about this, the response you get almost universally is, well, okay, uh, we can do arms control. Would you like to cut your arsenal till it's the size that we have, or do you want to wait until we build ours up until it's the same size as yours? Exactly. Uh, and I don't think there's a good answer to that. <laughs> no, there isn't. And, and, and you know, when you have rising powers who haven't been part of the established order, they feel that they've been at a disadvantage, whether it's with regard to arms buildup or climate emissions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you have this dilemma of up or down. Mm-hmm. Um, can I catch up first? Uh, right. Or you agree to be constrained to my level. So I think we're dealing with this not just in arms control, but across the board. Yeah, right. And again, I don't know that there's a good answer to that. Um, and there's also not a good answer to the question of given all the new technologies that potentially have strategic consequences, how do you, one, regulate them, and two, how do you link them to nuclear arms control, which is something that we at least have experience doing. Uh, And that's a problem that's going to be keeping uh, lots of smart people busy probably for the next generation. Maybe an interim measure is, you know, it doesn't cost much to or take a lot of bureaucratic effort to extend New START uh, to buy time to figure out what these larger agreements look like. We can't make it so big and so comprehensive that it's doomed to fail from the start. Right. Especially because the technology continues to change. Absolutely. Even as we negotiate. Well, it's going to be an interesting debate, and I think it'll be obviously interesting to watch or what the decision on, on the future of New START is. Of course, it's not due until early 2021, so it's unclear whether it'll be the Trump administration or a Democratic administration that's going to actually be taking that decision. And of course, that will 
have how that election turns out will, of course, have implications for the future of, of New START, but probably of arms control more generally. Well, I would like to think that, you know, even though politics sometimes play a negative role in our decision making, this is something that I, I, I would think the president would gravitate towards in, in order to show that he's serious about arms control and creating a, a more safe and stable world. An extension could play positively into a re-election campaign if, if it were messaged in a proper way. You know, I, I think that the current administration is a little bit divided on the question of arms control. Um, I think you're right that there probably is a an electoral advantage to be gained from promoting uh, a future in which arms control is is part of what the United States does as a means of reducing overseas commitments. Uh, although, you know, I don't think that's going to be a, a driving issue in the in the 2020 election. On the other hand, I think you have people in the administration who don't like the idea of the United States being constrained by arms control of any kind and are going to be pushing the president uh, to you know, walk away from these agreements and how that internal debate within the administration is going to play out. I certainly can't predict. It's it's definitely a difficult problem. I think at, at this point, the administration has, has three clear choices. They can extend the treaty. They can go go for the big bucks and, and try to make it very comprehensive, or they can just let it lapse. Mm-hmm. Um, or and they can punt and, well, assuming they're not reelected, let the next administration. They do have it. time to punt. That's that's correct. Um, but I think I think the the leverage is is in extending it on a conditional basis mm-hmm. and creating space for the verification regimes that you've alluded to. Yeah. Well, obviously, this is something we're going to be watching closely. You know, it's tough because right now the NATO unity is definitely hard won. And if you look at earlier versions of the EU statement, they actually created an equivalency between U.S. actions and Russian Russian. actions. Mm -hmm. And so I I don't think NATO has a lot of space to push the envelope very much. So they're not saying a lot about what the future posture would look like or, or anything like that. There's definitely a divide between allies who see Russia as their number one threat, mm-hmm. um, both because of history and their geographic and proximity to Russia, and they will be pushing for maximalist solutions. There are others who are concerned about escalation mm-hmm. um, or who simply have other priorities. Uh, right. Turkey, for instance. Turkey, uh, even France. I think yeah. France is very preoccupied with with what's going on in Africa, mm-hmm. um, and to some extent, you know, a lot of allies are also involved in in Iraq and Syria. So it's a lot of security demands, and yeah. the last thing they need is an escalation of something mm-hmm. that's been pretty static right. for a while, or a big fight over sort of NATO's core mission at a time when there's plenty of other stuff that they disagree about. That's right. I mean, sometimes the status quo is the best policy and NATO does not do radical change. Right. Well, when you're trying to get (laughs) 29 countries to agree on anything, it's tough. Right. And it's a good thing because that's what what our allies and partners are for, are to check our worst instincts and to make sure that national interests are not outweighing the collective good. So Mm -hmm. I think it's a healthy process to try to balance nuclear conventional and missile defense capabilities to think about the variety of threats that are out there mm-hmm. and not to overfocus on, on any one, one problem. Them. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, Rachel, thanks very much. No problem. Thanks for having me.
Thanks for joining us. That's our show today. Uh, there's a link to Rachel's bio in the show notes and a link to her recent commentary called A NATO Strategy for a Post-INF World. As always, if you haven't already, you should subscribe to Russian Roulette on iTunes, where you can also leave us a rating or a review. And if you're not on iTunes, you can check us out and subscribe on Google Play or SoundCloud. Also, keep sending us your mailbag questions to rep at csis.org with the words Russian Roulette in the subject line. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at CSIS Russia, or you can follow me at Dr. J. Mankoff. And of course, finally, big thanks to everybody who worked so hard to make the podcast happen. That includes our producer, research associate, and program manager, Roxana Kapadulina, and the entire CSIS external relations and ILAB team. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again soon.